Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the Word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. While we break for community groups during the summer, we'd love for you to stay connected through men's and women's groups on Wednesday nights at 6. Beach Baptisms is always an event we look forward to, and we hope you'll make plans to join us for that tonight at 4 p.m. at Henderson Beach State Park. We will send out a church-wide text in the afternoon to let everyone know what pavilion we will be at for setup. The park entrance fee is $5, and once everyone arrives, we'll head down to the beach for the baptisms. Afterwards, we'll have hot dogs and hamburgers, and if you haven't signed up to bring a side, dessert, or drinks, you can still bring any of those items. It's such an exciting time in the life of our church, and we are so thankful for the growth that the Lord is giving us. To help accommodate those looking for seating during service, it would be super helpful to keep in-seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. All right. Well, hey, good morning again. Uh, my name is Tad Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at the Hub City Church. And uh, once again, we just, we're so glad you're here to worship Jesus with us this morning. Uh, and we do hope that you'll join us uh, tonight for beach baptisms where we're going to celebrate, as Matt just said, um, 10 to 12 um, expressions of what Jesus has been doing in our body, uh, bringing new brothers and sisters from death to life. It's going to be an amazing thing. We're really looking forward to that. Um, just a couple details on that. Logistically, I uh, just want to let you know, um, it will be at Henderson Beach State Park. Uh, it is $5 to park, but it's worth it, I think, for the amenities and the pavilion and all of that. Um, we are going to text out via church-wide text. If we have your number, we'll text out what pavilion we'll actually be at once our leaders get down there and determine which pavilion we'll be at, okay? Um, so yeah, also if, if you're not, if you're like, oh no, I don't have my number in your system yet, that's fine. Uh, we'll post like a, a social media story as well, so go on Facebook or go on Instagram, follow us that way, and we'll have it, one way or the other, you will know where we'll be at, okay? Um, that is at 4 p.m. We would like for people to show up around 4 just because of traffic and everything. Uh, we'll probably start baptisms at about 5 o'clock. So we're trying to get there, get everybody there so that we can all go down to the beach together. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's that. If you have other questions, just grab me after the service or grab any of our leaders. We're glad to uh, talk with you about that. Um, also, if you are interested in joining a community group, um, we would like to know about that because we're about to, uh, after beach baptisms, we're going to uh, restart community groups. And um, that's really where the life of the church happens primarily from, from week to week. It's not just in this service. Um, and so uh, if you want to be in communi biblical community with us, um, there is an online form you can fill out. I think we're going to have a, okay, yeah, we got a hard copy too. So if you, just as you're leaving today, if you're like, hey, I want to be in a community group, stop by the connection desk. There's a form you can fill out um, and we'll get your name and all that. We, it, really, the thing is, we just don't want to pile up any one community group with like, you know, 60 people in it and have other ones with like 10 people in it. We want to make sure it's, you know, evenly divided so we can care for everybody. So please let us know about that so we could administrate appropriately. Uh, and then the last thing is, uh, on the last Sunday of this month, uh, directly after service, we're going to be having a uh, family business meeting where we'll discuss uh, how we're doing this year so far uh, and our plans as we finish up uh, the second half of 2023. We're going to review our uh, current financials as well as some other things that we're tracking in conjunction with our five-year goals. Uh, and man, there's, there's really a lot to celebrate. So um, if you are a member of the Hub City Church, um, let me just tell you, you're expected to be there unless you know, you're 
sick or out of town or something like that, then, uh, then you get an excused absence. But please be there if you're a member of the church because um, this is a members meeting. This is a family meeting where we're talking about how we're doing as a church. Um, if you're not a member uh, yet of the Hub City Church, but you would like to become a member and you just haven't gotten through that process yet, you also are welcome to join us. We'd love for you to be there. It'd be a good time for you to hear more about our vision, our goals. And obviously, if you're interested in seeing our financials, we're glad for you to do that um, in this setting. And we're totally transparent about those things. So we'd love for you to come and ask any questions that you might have. So, all right. That's, uh, that's all I have by way of announcements. Uh, if today is not your first Sunday with us, you probably know we're in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if it is your first Sunday, uh, we're in the book of Ephesians. So uh, it's one of my favorite books uh, of the Bible. I think many lovers of God's word would say the same. The book is uh, really, you could say, split into two uh, parts. The beginning of the book up through about chapter 3 is all doctrine. It's this kind of lengthy and, and wonderful articulation of the gospel, how we are saved and the church family that we're saved in two. Uh, that said, we're now in the second half of the letter, which is very instructive of how to live practically in light of the gospel as people who have been saved into God's family, the body of Christ. And last week we began in this discussion on the process of change or transformation um, as Christians. The Apostle Paul explained it with this language of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And today, <clears throat> we're going to see him <laughs> rattle off this, uh, just a whole slew of commands for what that looks like. So, um, as always, let's read it together, and we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25, says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, we thank you as always for the grace of a new day and another gathering of this local body of Christ. God, God we praise you for all these new brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to uh, make a public proclamation of their faith uh, in, in Jesus today, God. Thank you for um, how you are giving growth here. No, no man is doing this, Lord. You are the one doing this. May we always remember that um, the fruit we see, uh, the growth we see, ultimately it comes from you. We plant, we water, we preach the gospel, but God, you are the one who gives the growth, and for that we we praise you. Um, as we open your word, Lord, my, my prayer is that you would ingrain in us from this passage just how much of the practical instruction that you give us as believers involves how we treat one another, how we love, how we serve, how we care, how we forgive, and and even just how we speak to each other. God, these, these things may seem simple or obvious, but as those of us who have been following you a while know, they are not by any means easy in the situations where we are most challenged to obey. And these are, are not things that we can pull off in the flesh. 
in order to do what this passage clearly lays out, God, in order to be conformed to a totally new character in line with our new identity in Christ, we need you, Lord. We need you to help us mightily by your spirit. So God, would you convict and and strengthen us this morning with this passage of your word? Would you help me to deliver it faithfully? And would you help all who hear to understand it rightly that they might apply it for your glory and their ongoing growth and spiritual maturity? It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, some of you may know I was a part of the Hub City Church well before I was the pastor of the Hub City Church. I came here uh, in my early 20s, newly married with one kid. I'm now in my mid-30s, still happily married, but with four kids. And uh, when I arrived, I already knew that I was called to pastoral ministry. I was in school for a Bible degree, and I was contemplating the path that um, I, I thought the Lord might lead me down as I grew further into my calling. And um, in those early days, I had begun to consider the idea of being a church planter, someone who goes and starts a whole new church from the ground up. And as I thought through that and, and processed that idea, the, the name I was kind of rolling around for a church plant, if I ever did plant, was the nice church. Yeah, kind of funny, but let me, let me explain why, okay? The reasoning was because of my former life as an unbeliever, okay? Um, I was a very nominal Christian in my late teens. By nominal, I mean I considered myself to be a Christian, but based on the way that I lived, I was Christian in name only, Okay? Um, While I had always prided myself on being a nice guy, the older I got, um, there was just more and more of my life that I realized did not line up like someone who had been radically changed by the Christian gospel. Regardless of, of my being nice, my life was all about me. My life was all about me. My relationships reflected that. How I spent my time reflected that. How I spent my money reflected that. There was no interaction with Jesus at all on my part. And I certainly did not ever consider how he would like for me to live my life. Okay, And so when I got saved, obviously I, I realized all of these things. And in thinking through the idea of planting a church, my heart was most concerned for people like me. Because there are a lot of them out there. People who are nice, but not new. My desire was for nice people to be saved and come to the understanding like I did That being well-mannered, friendly, and an all-around good person does not actually equate to being a Christian. Okay, And and by the way, if if this sounds thought-provoking to you, let me just go ahead and tell you what makes someone a Christian. What, What actually happens in the life of someone who becomes a Christian? The first thing is an admission that you are... You're not good, actually, that you're a sinner who has not lived your life to glorify God, followed by repentance or a turning away from your old, self-centered, presumptuous way of living as though you could be your own God, and then a clear turning to Christ as the only one who can save you from your sin by paying for it with his atoning death on the cross, followed by a transformed life of following Jesus and being conformed back into God's good design for you as his image-bearing son or daughter who exists to glorify him. Okay, that, that's a Christian. Okay. Hopefully you can tell that is a lot different than simply being a nice person. Okay. Christianity is about becoming a totally new person with a totally new identity in Christ. Listen to what the 
famous Christian author C.S. Lewis says on this topic. He says, A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. And they might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped, and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. And so here is why I have taken the time to preempt our discussion of the text with all of this. Because as I said last week, these practical application type texts in Ephesians, where Paul is instructing us on how to live like Christians, these texts are not meant to be used like self-help texts whereby a non-believer can somehow white-knuckle the modification of their morality and by their own willpower make themselves a Christian. That's not possible. Okay, that's, That's not possible. These texts are for people who have already been made new by the grace of God. Our passage this morning is for born-again believers to understand the key changes that their new self ought to be characterized by so that they can get on board with the program of transformation that God is already working in them by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Are you tracking? Okay. Now, um, if, if if you are following that, then here's how we frame our passage today. At the front end and the back end of our verses, there are two bookends uh, that are both essentially saying the same thing. Um, One is from last week's text, uh, Ephesians 4.24, that says, put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And if you skip ahead to um, chapter 5, verse 1, he says again, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, in in both of these verses, Paul is helping us to understand that all of these aspects of the new self are related to our identity as image-bearing children of God. Okay, Um, all the ways that we change in Christ are like this. They're this conglomerate transformation to reflect to others what God is like. By the way, that's a big part of why Jesus came in the first place, isn't it? Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? And so we as believers are becoming more like Christ to do what Christ did in his earthly life, to reflect the goodness and the glory of God to the world around us. That's our mission. As people taste and see the goodness and grace of Christ in us, Gosh, who's sufficient for these things, right? Who's sufficient for that? But as people taste and see the goodness and grace of Christ in and through us, as Matt said, we share the good news of how they too can come into a saving relationship with Christ and become a part of his family with us, right? So um, here's how I've summarized it in your notes. Um, This is really tied to last week's text, so I had to kind of put some of that in there. So, since we are putting on the new self, remade in the image of God, our spiritual transformation should flow out of deep consideration and intentional imitation of the character of God 
particularly in our relationships with one another. Okay. Our spiritual transformation should flow out of deep consideration and intentional imitation of the character of God, especially in our relationships with one another. So uh, what Paul is doing throughout these verses is he, he's basically saying, um, here's what God has been like toward you. So you principalize that and then apply those principles by being that same way to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, uh, I have a nephew who was adopted. He came straight home from the hospital into my brother and, sister-in-law, brother and sister-in-law's home. Um, he looks completely different from them. Uh, they all have dark brown hair. He has really light blonde hair. It's obvious his features are just different. Um, but as he grows up in that family, from being around his new mom and dad and siblings, he's becoming just like them. And that's going to continue on the older that he gets. He inevitably sees how they are. He sees the culture of their family, and he imitates their character. Because that's what kids do. Right? That's what kids do. And the beautiful thing is, Stephen, my nephew, will in time become a totally different person than he would have if he had grown up in the brokenness and dysfunction of his biological family's home. Um, This is a similar thing to what has taken place in our lives as believers, spiritually, right? We've been adopted into God's family. And now as his children, we are intently looking to him, putting off the old ways of falsehood that we were living in as spiritual orphans and putting on the new ways of Christ who perfectly displays for us the traits of God's family. Okay, We are being progressively remade in his image as we consider and conform to his character in our relationships with one another. And as we touched on, this process of transformation is being moved along primarily by the Holy Spirit inside of us. This is why Paul tells us not to grieve the Spirit of God by whom we've been sealed for the day of redemption. Right? Because we have all become temples or dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, When we stubbornly dig our heels in as he is graciously trying to help us grow, he is grieved. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a person, and he's in you. And when we dig our heels in, in this process of what he's trying to do, it grieves him. The Holy Spirit in us is leading us into truth. He's convicting us of sin. He's prompting us at innumerable points in life to put off the old and put on the new. He's saying that behavior, that attitude, that group of people is not for you anymore. Go this way. Be this way. Do these things now instead. And when we say, hmm, No, I like the old way, right? (laughs) He's grieved. And the way that parents are grieved by the disobedience in their children who they love and desire to see grow up and and flourish, right? So, So Paul says, look to God the Father, consider Jesus' way of life, listen to the Spirit, and then do as they do. Do as they do. So let me boil this passage down into three principles of God's character that we should aim to imitate. Okay? Here's number one. Above all, God loves us and determines to do good to us, not based on our merit, but on his glorious and benevolent nature. God loves us and determines to do good to us, not based on our merit, but on his glorious and benevolent nature. This is really the overarching principle um, that all the others are going to fall underneath. Because as we know, God is love, right? We know that. God is love. All that he does for us 
um, comes from his totally loving disposition. And so in verse 2 of chapter 5, where it directs us to walk in love, right? Walk in love. Here's the tie to his character. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he's, he's saying that the love of Christ is evidenced in his giving himself up for us. That's easy, right? We, we, we get that, okay? Christ's love for us is evidenced in his giving himself up for us. But we see that in this, this text here, we see that, that while giving up, the giving up of himself for us is loving towards us, it's actually motivated by something more. There's more to it. He did it as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God the Father. You could say that while what Jesus did on the cross benefited us greatly, okay, his deepest desire in saving us from our sin was actually to do what most glorified God. Okay. All through Scripture, we see this fleshed out. The fact that what most glorifies God and what most benefits us are one and the same. <laughs> these are one and the same. Consider these Psalms. Psalm 23, verse 3, speaking of God, says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins because we're so righteous. No, oh wait, nope. For your name's sake, right? Psalm 109, 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. Psalm 115.1. There's more than this, by the way, but this is just a sample. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Okay, so the psalmist knew this connection very well. Okay, the connection between God loving us and redeeming us and helping us, but glorifying himself in that process. Okay, now here's why this is so important. I hope you get that because... This is a critical gospel truth. Okay. God did not love us because we were so lovable. Sorry if I'm upsetting you. God did not love us because we were so lovable. God did not save us because we deserved it. God does not extend grace to those who earn it. Okay? That would be a logical contradiction, wouldn't it? <laughs> Grace is by definition unmerited favor. By nature, grace can only be given to people who do not deserve it. That's what grace is. Doing good to the undeserving while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, right? That's how it goes. Okay. <clears throat> this is the glorious and benevolent character of God toward us. And so, keep following me here, okay? In our interactions with one another, this is countercultural. Our love for one another, our determination to serve and care for and do good to each other, <clears throat> is not conditioned upon receiving love and care from one another. 
Our determination to serve and care for and do good to each other, to love one another, is not conditioned upon receiving love and care from each other. Let me tell you why. If you only love people who you deem lovely, and you only care for and serve people when you think they deserve it, you're going to be a critical and stingy person with your love. God is and has been extravagant with his love. Okay, if, if God had only loved those of us who deserved it, every soul in this room would spend eternity in hell. Okay. But God does not, praise God, he doesn't give his love based on our merit. God gives his love to us based on his own glorious and benevolent character. So the way that we imitate this unconditional, never-ending love of God toward one another is we too are to do it for his glory. We too are to do it for his glory. If you are not ultimately loving your brothers and sisters in Christ for the glory of God, your love's going to run out, friend. Your love's going to run out. Because people in and of themselves are not a good enough motivation for unconditional love. Just not. Sure, sometimes some people feel easy to love. I get that, right? Some people sometimes just feel easy to love. But that doesn't last forever. Just get married, you'll find out. My wife did. (laughs) She married me. (laughs) People mess up a lot. Given enough time, every single one of us is going to disappoint each other. Given enough proximity, we will show each other how sinful we really are. Just give us a chance. We'll do it for you. And so if you want to love people like God loves people, you have to do it with the right motivation. You want to walk in love longer than a month or a year or a decade with a big old group of broken people like a church? (laughs) Man, you don't have the spirit. Good luck, right? You need a bottomless reservoir of the right fuel. Here's the right fuel. The glory of God. The glory of God. If if you are continually amazed and in awe of how God could possibly love and save and keep loving and keep saving a messed up, sinful wretch like you, If you're blown away by that constantly, you'll walk in love toward others. You'll walk in love toward others. But, sadly, some of this is from experience. If you lose sight of that awe and wonder of the glorious grace of God toward you, you forget about that, your love will dry up and run out. And instead of saying, man, God is good. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Help me to love people like you have loved me. Instead, you'll start thinking thoughts like, well, these people done for me lately. Hmm? They want me to give and serve and do this and that, always more, right? What's in it for me? Before you know it, you're all backwards, twisted up, anti-gospel in your thinking. Because you stop drawing on the glory of God as your motivation for loving others. 
And instead, you're looking for people to earn your love. Right? Dear Christian, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't make people earn your love. Because God did not make us earn his love. He pours it out to us freely and generously. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. That's the motivation and the fuel, okay? So this is the first principle, okay? Above all, God loves us, and he determines to do good to us, not based on our merit, but on his glorious and benevolent nature. If we're going to walk in love consistently towards each other, we have to do it the same way God does. We have to draw upon the same motivation, the same fuel, which is the glory and grace of God. Okay? Here's the second principle. Having every right to maintain his anger over our sin and crush us for it, God has determined the most effective way to initiate and preserve our reconciliation. Okay? Having every right to maintain his anger over our sin and crush us for it, God has determined the most effective way to initiate and preserve our reconciliation. Listen again, listen again to these uh, commands from our text. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So listen, okay, <laughs> that, all that love stuff. Some of y'all are like, but what about? Okay, <laughs> so just because God loves us does not mean that he decides to consider our sin no big deal. God loves us, and he's also holy, and he loves his own holiness, and he insists that his people become holy and pure and their character just like him, okay? So hopefully you understand, this as an aside here, okay, that if you are living in sin, God is not happy about that. God is not happy about that. Right? Brother, sister, if you're living in sin, you are grieving the Spirit. Okay? In the same way, as people who aim to love one another as God has loved us, it is not wrong to feel angry when we see sin in the lives of our fellow believers, especially when it's against us or we're a witness to the harm that it's doing to others, okay? If you think, <laughs> well, <laughs> what I do in my private life is no one else's business, the Bible begs to differ, okay? The Bible begs to differ. If you claim to be a member of the body of Christ you should expect the other members of Christ's body to care about how you live. If you're caught in some habitual sin, you should expect for your fellow believers to be unhappy about that and to be committed to helping you repent. Okay. But again, let's consider the character of God. God, in his simultaneous love for people and anger toward their sin, made a way for his people to be made right with him while also appeasing his anger. Okay. The way was sending Christ to absorb his wrath on people's behalf and allowing them to turn to Christ in faith for forgiveness. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Let me just jog your memory. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9. He, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And because of that, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're like, okay, what's this have to do with us now? Okay, so, so as children and imitators of God, when we encounter sin in our community and it inevitably stirs up anger with the one who has sinned, The way that we put anger away from us and refuse to linger on it in our hearts is by considering the fact that the same gospel of grace that's true for us is also true for the person we're angry at in that moment. Okay. Again, this does not mean that we sweep their sin under the rug and never deal with it. We'll talk about that some in a minute. But the way that we deal with our anger, as one Bible teacher puts it, is by bending the doctrine of justification out horizontally toward the one who has sinned. Let me just say it like this. Remember that Jesus died for the sinner that you are angry at. And his blood has already covered their sin, just like it's covered your own. Okay. This is how we continue to love those that we get angry at over their sin. That's how we do that. And again, if... If you forget this gospel, you won't deal with your anger quickly, as Paul commands. But instead, ironically, you'll let someone else's sin be the impetus to your own sin. As you hang on to your anger over what they have done, you'll begin to produce all kinds of corrupt fruit like bitterness and slander and malice, which is like, Hatred, rather than desiring for repentance and grace to come to the person who is in sin, you'll start having ill will towards them. Even desiring harm to come to them, for them to get what they deserve. Praise God, we don't get what we deserve. Praise God, I don't get what I deserve. Far be it from me to hope that other people get what they deserve. Hope they get Christ. I got Christ. This is yucky stuff, guys. Anger can be a righteous response to sin, but it has to be dealt with appropriately and processed in a timely manner because it very quickly begins to turn in our hearts, turn sour in our hearts. This is why Paul, after he says not to let the sun go down on your anger, he tacks something else on there. Do you see what that is? And give no opportunity to who? The devil. What? How did he come into this? He says this, Because there are not many things more anti-gospel than refusing to let go of someone's sin. Staying angry and, and holding it over their heads. Unforgiveness and resentment will absolutely ruin the peaceful, loving culture that the church is called to maintain by the Spirit. It'll ruin it. It will ruin it. It will defile Many, as Hebrews says. Okay. And that's what the devil wants. That's what the devil wants. He wants to see the church torn apart by its own members. So if we refuse to be kind to one another, 
and tenderhearted toward those who sin, forgiving them in the way that Christ forgave us, we will actually get caught in the demonic schemes of the enemy. Um, I just went to see a movie the other day. And uh, leading up to the movie, there was a, a trailer for this terrible horror movie. You people who like horror, you're weird. Like, why, why do you want to watch that? Horror movies, okay? Like, okay. Sorry, Josh Davidson. Um, anyway, <laughs> love you, bro. <laughs> uh, but anyway, anyway. Um, it was about, like, this evil Catholic nun popping out at people, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm sitting there like, oh, I know it's coming. So, <laughs> you know, like, I'm still like, you know, I'm like, it's terrifying, right? Um, not, we'll not be watching that. Um, anyway, um, okay. Guys, uh, um, please, please don't let Hollywood inform you of what the devil is up to. They don't know. <laughs> That's so stupid. Don't let Hollywood inform you of what the devil is up to. Satan is, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Satan's probably not possess, possessing nuns as his primary way of hurting the church. You know how I know that? The Bible. The Bible. This text says that the way that we open up opportunities for the devil and the body of Christ is by harboring unresolved anger. Unforgiveness, actually. If the enemy can tempt us, church, to turn this community of amazing grace and unity into a community of amazing pettiness and disgruntled grudge holding, he's won. He's won. That's not a light for Christ. That mess looks just like the world. Friends, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's not give the enemy a foothold in our body. Instead, let's consider deeply the character of God and realize that he has shown us a way to be angry with sin and yet remain tenderhearted toward the sinner, not desiring their punishment but their restoration. Some of us, some of us have a greater proclivity towards anger than others. If that's you, I don't need to tell you. You just know it. You know it already. You get angry quick, you know. Like, people got on my nerves. They're like, you got a half a nerve, that's why, you know. Like, you don't have as many as other people, all right? <laughs> but the way to handle your anger is to consider, okay? This is how you handle your anger. Consider the righteous, all-powerful fury of God's angry wrath that he could have been perfectly just to pour out on you and to use biblical language, allow the smoke of your torment to go up forever and ever. But instead, he poured it out on Christ. He passed over you. And he poured that out on Christ, on the cross. He could have crushed us. Instead, he made a way to reconcile us. And we're called to strive for the same. Okay. And finally, Paul says um, in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're, we're members of one another. In verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So with these verses, here's the final principle. 
Number three, God has communicated the whole truth to us in love, even the challenging and painful parts, so that our relationship can be intimate, not superficial. Okay, God has disclosed everything to us that we could need to know about himself and how our lives ought to be lived in light of who he is, okay? On one hand, God has given us beautiful promises to trust about his providential care and his unfathomable love for us. And on the other hand, God breaks the news to us about the deceitfulness of our sin in our hearts, and he warns us of the eternal danger that exists if we won't listen to and obey his fatherly instruction. The two sides of the truth. God tells us the whole truth because he loves us. And if he didn't ever tell us about the issue of our sin, we would continue on through life in ignorant bliss only to spend eternity in anguish apart from him in punishment. People often ask me, Pastor, why do you talk about sin so much, like every sermon? Because I love you. You can go to a church that doesn't preach on sin. You know why they don't preach on sin? Because they don't really love you. They don't love you. Right? Not like they're supposed to, anyway. Okay. God told us the whole truth. He, he, he didn't want that. He, he didn't want us to just have a, a superficial knowledge that he exists. He wanted us to know him intimately. Right? In John 15, 15, Jesus says this, This is mind-blowing. We just talked about this in our men's ministry the other day. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, no longer, it's the God of the universe, right? It's the king of all creation saying to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Wow. Revelation 3.19, again, this is Jesus speaking to his church. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So just as God has been truthful with us, we are to have a community that's characterized by speaking truthfully to each other. Okay? Um, Even when it's hard and painful, even... And some of you have been waiting, like, you're going to say this? Like, even when we have to tell a brother or sister that they're in sin and that they need to repent, we do have to do that sometimes, okay? Paul reminds us that we are members of one another. We're part of the same body. We're not part of the same country club, okay? We're part of the same body. And so as hard as it might be to tell someone about a spiritual cancer that you see in their life, to not tell them out of concern for the initial pain they might feel is not loving. It's unloving, right? A doctor does not tell a patient that they need chemotherapy because the doctor wants them to suffer. He tells them because he wants them to have a chance to kill what may otherwise kill them. Okay? And so this willingness... To speak the truth to each other in love, it erodes superficiality and it breeds relational intimacy. But this category of our speech toward one another, it extends to other things too. We are to be uh, truthful with one another as opposed to lying to each other. Um, A culture of truth is a culture of trust. Okay? Where we cannot expect to hear the truth, relationships will inevitably break down. Just consider the phenomenon of fake news over the past few years in our society. Okay? People, I mean, whether it's fake or not or whatever, I'm not making a comment on that, but people trust our news and our government agencies less and less because they're afraid that anything that they hear might have some kind of Deceptive spin on it or something, okay? This cannot be the case in Jesus' church. 
We have to be known as people who tell one another the truth. When this is the case, a culture of confidence in one another and in the Lord is built. Jesus ties disclosure of the truth to close friendship. And so we are to do the same. And finally, we are to consider how any other way that we speak to one another might build up and give grace to each other. Our words have the ability to encourage or discourage, to help or to harm, to strengthen or to tear down. So thinking through this, we are to understand the nuances of our speech. Okay? It's possible to speak truth in a way that hurts people unnecessarily. Do you know that? It's possible to be truthful in a way that hurts people for no good reason. Sure, sometimes hearing the truth is going to be a bit painful, okay? No matter that, you know, the truth hurts, right? No, no matter how gentle we are, but there is a movement in our society that makes me sick. It's these wannabe truth tellers, okay, who may get some things right, but they are just ugly and mean-spirited about it. So they might be right, but they're wrong about how they're right. Okay, church, this kind of needless harshness, it has no place among us in the body of Christ. We are to be a truthful community, but we should be known, as was our Lord Jesus, for grace and truth. Grace and truth. Okay, it should go without saying then, tack this on there, that we're definitely never to be derogatory or overly crude or profane in our verbal dealings with each other. Okay, I've heard people try to make the argument before that, you know, there's no biblical prohibition against cussing, but I mean, can we just be real? Can we just be real? If you're thinking clearly through it, is your cussing helping people be led to Christ? Just something for you to think about, okay? I don't think those kinds of words are helpful for others being built up or pointed to Christ. And actually, I would argue, they probably detract from the message that we're called to proclaim, okay? Anyway, food for thought on that one, but um, we don't want that, right? We don't want to detract from the truth of the gospel, so let's not do things that might do that. Instead, since we're putting on the new self, remade in the image of God, our spiritual transformation should flow out of deep consideration and intentional imitation of the character of God. Like God, we are to love people, not based on their merit, but out of the riches of his glorious grace. Rather than maintaining our anger, we are to direct our anger at sin and be tenderhearted towards sinners, desiring to maintain reconciliation. And as God has spoken the truth to us in love, we too should be truthful in all of our speech that we might have relational intimacy with one another and give grace to each other with our words. Okay, this way of carrying ourselves, this new character, it's about more than being nice. It's about more than being nice. This is about being new, okay? Next week, we'll talk about another really big and important aspect of our newness together as the body of Christ. But for now, let's pray and then let's go celebrate later this afternoon. Um, man, 10 to 12 people in our midst here who are declaring through baptism that they too have been made gloriously new by Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we're so, so grateful that you first loved us. God, had you not sought me out, had you not loved me, because of who you are, not because of who I am. I would not be standing here. I wouldn't even be a Christian. So, Father, we thank you for that amazing gospel. Father, I pray that 
we would not just see, as a church family, the Hub City Church, that we would not just see the gospel as the way to our justification, but that we would see that same gospel as the way through our sanctification, the way that we are transformed and made new. God, would we not be people who trust you with our eternity, whenever that's coming for us, but who don't trust you in the now and who don't allow your spirit to conform us into the image of Christ now. God, help us. We can't do these things. They're so simple, and yet they're impossible for us apart from the work of your spirit. Thank you for making us new. Would you continue to make us new? Help us to put off the old and put on the new, made in the likeness of God in Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.